It doesn't matter if you are a data scientist or not, because deep learning is something that you must know. If you have no patience, I will just throw it. Deep learning is the result of training many layers of nonlinear processing units for feature extraction and data transformation. That's a very simplistic uh, conclusion and actually definition of uh, deep learning. Of course, it's much more than that. And in this episode, I'm going to unroll the details about uh, deep learning technology and uh, especially some applications where it is being used at the moment. But of course, a bit of history. Now, imagine you have a bunch of pixels that compose your image that can be transformed into a bunch of edges. And these edges can be transformed into shapes. And these shapes can give rise to objects that can be classified. Objects can describe a scene that can be captioned via text. Stop imagining this because deep learning can do this already. Welcome to Data Science at Home, the podcast about data science for small companies and large enterprises. Data Science at Home is the show where we tell you the skills you need and the tools you can build at home. We are supported by World of Piggy, thinking human world in mathematical terms. Visit worldofpiggy.com or Twitter at World of Piggy. The word deep learning has been characterized as a buzzword very recently, or just a rebranding of neural networks. This is only partially true. Some of the most successful deep learning methods, of course, involve artificial neural networks, and they all have been inspired by neuroscience and synapses of the human brain. Now, we are not going to explain the biological details behind this mechanism, but historically, artificial neural networks have been inspired by a biological model that dates back in 1959, and that model was proposed by David Hubel and Thorsten Wiesel, two Nobel laureates who found two types of cells in the primary visual cortex. Without any excess of originality, they called them simple cells and complex cells. Many artificial neural networks today can be viewed as cascading models of cell types that have been inspired by these biological observations. Now a bit of history. Artificial neural networks date back to the 80s when the majority of researchers that today are involved into deep learning were just kids. Then why was this approach being abandoned for a while? Well, the answer is in the lack of big data and computing power, of course, in the early days. Big data is the problem of today, and that's not really a big problem for deep learning. It's actually a benefit. In this episode, I'm going to emphasize on five major events in the past, and I think they contributed to define what we call deep learning today. The first major event is Fukushima's neocognitron, which introduced convolutional neural networks partially trained by unsupervised learning with features that were directed by human beings in the neural plane. The second event is backpropagation. That was invented by Jan Lekun in 1989, who applied supervised backpropagation to architectures of that type. Only three years later, 1992, Wang published convolutional neural networks Creceptrum, which was used for 3D object recognition of images of cluttered scenes and segmentation of objects from images. 
The third major event, I think, is Max Pooling. That was again 1992, and it appeared to be proposed by the Cresceptrum network to enable that network to tolerate small to large deformation in a hierarchical way while still using convolution. Now you have to know that max pooling is just a big fancy name to say that if you take a matrix of 3x3 or 2x2 or 5x5, you just take the maximum value among these 3x3 pixels. And then you slide this window, this matrix, across the image and you keep picking the maximum value of each window. The image that results from this operation is quite robust to shift invariance at the pixel level, even though max pooling doesn't really guarantee from a mathematical perspective that shift invariance is preserved. The fourth event is that back in 1990, a lot of researchers tried to train deeper and deeper networks and they all mostly failed. Now, in 1991, Seppo realized, actually he formally identified, the main reason for which all these researchers were failing. At the time, people thought that the deeper the network, the better, and the more power it would have had, which is kind of true. If you think of a two-layer neural network, of course it has a power that is relatively limited with respect to, for instance, a 20-layer network. What people really didn't understand back in the 90s was something that Seppo Kreiter got and uh, wrote about in his, uh, in his thesis, and that's the problem of vanishing gradients, which affects, of course, many layered feedforward networks, and of course also recurrent neural networks. So what are vanishing gradients? To understand vanishing gradients, we have to know how backpropagation works, but just bear in mind that backpropagation is an algorithm that allows you to train a network and learn the internal parameters of the network, such that when there are new data, the network can classify, can put a label on this data just by using these internal parameters. These internal parameters are most likely calculated by using a gradient. The gradient is used to minimize a function, the loss function, and the gradient is computed by using the errors. Now, if the errors go to zero, as indeed it happens for very large networks, multi-layer networks, also the gradient tends to go to zero and therefore training the internal parameters of a network becomes extremely slow, if impossible. Seppo realized that errors propagate from layer to layer and they shrink exponentially with the number of layers impeding the tuning of neuron weights, which is based on those errors. He proposed a solution after six years, in 1997, it's called LSTM, which stands for Long Short Term Memory, and it's probably one of the most widely used architectures so far. The fifth and last major event that occurred quite recently is pre-training. The method that has been proposed by Geoffrey Hinton, today uh, he works for Google, he proposed an approach that first learns generally useful feature detectors, and then the network is trained further by supervised backpropagation to classify labeled data. What Hinton proposed and in a model uh, that dates back to 2006 is that he can learn the distribution of a high-level representation using successive layers of binary or real-valued latent variables. He uses also a restricted Boltzmann machine to model each new layer of higher-level features. 
and each new layer guarantees one simple thing that increases the log likelihood of the data, improving the model. Now, this can sound a bit like a tongue twister. It basically says that if trained well, the model proposed by Hinton can generate data that are similar to the ones that were fed from the training set. Now, what is the point of generating data? It's actually building a generative model. Well, once sufficiently many layers have been learned, the deep architecture may be used as a generative model to generate data that resemble the training set by reproducing the data when sampling down the model from the top-level feature activations. The idea of doing so is twofold. The first is that if you understand how data are, have been generated, of course you can understand how to make prediction on new data, because we know the mechanism that can produce that data. And the second reason for which this generative model was very interesting at the time is that when you don't have enough data, you can generate some. Now, remember the first question at the beginning of this episode, what is deep learning? Deep learning is basically many layers of non-linear processing units that are trained for feature extraction and transformation. And I also gave you an example of a bunch of pixels that gets transformed into edges, into shapes, and then into objects. The objects are classified, and they describe a scene, and the scene eventually can be captioned by text. Now, here is the power of deep learning. One of the promises of deep learning is replacing handcrafted features with efficient algorithms for unsupervised feature learning and hierarchical feature extraction. So far in machine learning, there are researchers who basically use handcrafted features. It's called feature engineering. And that it's really bound to the application domain or to the type of data that these guys are usually working with. With deep learning, all of this can disappear because features can be extracted automatically directly from the data. For supervised learning tasks, deep learning methods obviate feature engineering, as I said, by translating the data into a compact intermediate representation. If you're familiar with principal components, it's very similar to that concept. Principal components analysis is nothing more than reducing the dimensionality of uh, your input data, let's say of 1000 dimensions, into 100 dimensions or even less. Sometimes people who want to plot high dimensional data reduce the dimensionality to two or three dimensions so that they can plot it graphically. But principal component analysis is a linear method that will ignore all the nonlinearities of the data. This doesn't occur with deep learning because neurons are extremely nonlinear. There is a sigmoid function, for instance, that allows the neuron to shoot if a certain threshold is reached or not, and that is a nonlinear function. The equivalent of principal component analysis in the deep learning world is called autoencoders. Autoencoders are special neural networks that can reconstruct the input from the input itself. Of course, if you have an identity function, it will actually replicate the input, but that's not the point of learning. The point of learning is into having, for instance, a layer, an input layer of a thousand dimensions, a hidden layer of 120 dimensions, and then try to reconstruct the thousand dimensions that you got at the input from the 120 dimensions. If you do so, and you minimize the loss functions and you train such a network, you will get a number of coefficients, 120 dimensions, that are essential to reconstruct the input. And that means that if there were a geometry in the data, that geometry will be learned. 
The work of Geoffrey Hinton had devastating consequences, of course in a positive way. When trained on a set of examples in an unsupervised way, a deep belief network can learn to probabilistically reconstruct its inputs. The layers then act as feature detectors on inputs. After this first learning step, a deep belief network can be trained in a supervised way, as they always do, to perform classification. And that is possible because you will have X and Y, that is the input and the class. The observation, due to a student of uh, Geoffrey Hinton, that deep belief networks could be trained greedily one layer at a time, opened the door to a brand new horizon in deep learning, because this led to one of the first effective deep learning algorithms that could be parallelized, computed by GPUs, learned in a more effective way, much faster than before, etc, etc. There are essentially three findings after these major events uh, of the past. First of all, I would like to be fair and give credits to the right folks. So the term deep learning gained traction only in mid-2000, if I'm not wrong, after a publication by Hinton and Ruslan Salakutninov, who showed how a many-layered feed-forward neural network could be indeed effectively pre-trained one layer at a time, treating each layer in turn as an unsupervised restricted Boltzmann machine, and then fine-tuning it at the end using supervised backpropagation. It was basically the method proposed by Hinton. But this very method was already proposed and actually implemented eight years before, in 1992, by Schmidt-Huber, who implemented a very similar idea for the more general case of unsupervised deep hierarchies of recurrent neural networks, and also experimentally shown its benefits for speeding up supervised learning. A second consequence of all of this is that at the beginning it was believed that pre-training deep neural networks using the generative model proposed by Hinton would overcome the main difficulties of neural networks that were usually encountered in the 90s, for instance, lack of large training datasets. However, at Microsoft's research, they discovered that without pre-training, but just by using large amounts of training data, and especially deep neural networks designed with large context-dependent output layers, produce error dramatically lower than the state of the art. Now, this finding was verified by other uh, gr research groups who were working with uh, speech recognition, for instance. So basically, the take-home message here is that it depends on which data a network is trained. Data where context is maintained between output and input are way more valuable and can make a network perform much, much better. The third and last fact that made deep learning so widespread is, of course, GPUs. GPUs have been shown to speed up training algorithms by orders of magnitude, bringing running times from weeks to days. Another important phenomenon is that deep learning today has been open-sourced, generating a number of important code repositories, technical wrappers and papers that are not following the slow publication path of traditional journals of academia, for instance. Things are getting published the day after they get discovered. In the world of deep learning, a very similar phenomenon to WhatsApp is happening. WhatsApp was 
probably the first global messaging system that could serve up to 1 billion users and was developed only by 50 engineers compared to the thousands of engineers who usually were involved in uh, massive systems of this type. Now this WhatsApp effect is exactly what is happening in artificial intelligence and especially with deep learning. There is a lot of software Many software tools like Theano and TensorFlow or Keras libraries combined with cloud data centers for training and inexpensive GPUs for deployment that is allowing small teams of engineers and researchers to build state-of-the-art artificial intelligence systems, even at home. In the show notes of this episode, I report two addresses where you can build your deep learning machine. Where is deep learning being used today? There are a lot of applications that see deep learning in action. I will give here a non-exhaustive list. If you go on tinyclouds.org slash colorize, you will experience an amazing automatically coloring software. It's basically deep learning that colors automatically black and white images. And you have the guarantee that this system was trained with images that are completely different from the image that you are providing. Another interesting application is Teradeep, which is a real-time object classifier. If you look at the demo video, it's gonna be a bit like being in the helmet of Terminator back in 1984, because there is this webcam going around and uh, tagging objects, uh, like a hand, some books, a desk, etc. And it's quite accurate. Another very, very accurate deep learning based software is, of course, Google Photos, by which you can search images just by text. Of course, in the field of automotive, autonomous cars should recognize obstacles and adapt to many difficult circumstances and scenarios on the road. Therefore, deep learning is being used there because they want to build an artificial brain that can drive like a human, if not better. Probably one of the best applications so far where you can see deep learning in action is Google Smart Reply. Now, if you install the inbox by Google Gmail, it's basically a computer that responds to emails on your behalf. And it's very accurate. It is basically a sequence-to-sequence -sequence neural network, an LSTM, that is fed with a free text, like an email, which is converted into a vector, so similar emails have similar vectors and this vector becomes the input of a decoder that outputs another sequence namely the most probable answer to that specific email so far the output is quite short around five to six words like i don't know see you later or me too but these answers are extremely accurate of course nlp natural language processing is already facing deep learning in the form of word embedding. Now, word embedding is nothing more than a matrix where the rows are, for instance, words of your vocabulary and the columns represent the number of dimensions of each word. So each word is basically converted into a numerical vector. Therefore, computing the similarity between words is as easy as computing the similarity between numerical vectors. If you literally plot the words into the graph, you can get clusters of words after the network has been trained on a free text, for instance, like a book or an email or millions of emails probably and uh, millions of characters. At the end of the training epoch, you will learn a word embedding. This word embedding, if plotted, can basically group similar words together. Now, 
Words can be similar according to a number of criteria, for instance, similar syntax, similar semantics, similar meaning, but the similarity that is caught by a word embedding is very much text dependent. I am personally having a lot of fun with that and I'm training an LSTM uh, with word embedding on the text of Alice in Wonderland and I found that some words are grouped together, words like uh, do, does, did, don't, make and of course they are close to each other for a reason. I guess there is some kind of syntax similarity but also semantic similarity. There is also conjugation of the verb do and make and do are indeed similar words in the English vocabulary. All of this got learned by the neural network without any syntax parser, without any ontology, but just brutally by reading Alice in Wonderland probably more than 2 million times. Deep learning is amazing. However, a lot of criticism derived by the fact that neural networks have always been considered black boxes and people could not understand what is inside and sometimes they get scared, especially researchers, they want to understand what is inside their predictive models. Of course, this is my own opinion, a black box will stay a black box as long as you don't open it and look inside. This is most of the time referred to as weights or word embeddings or just embeddings. If you look into the network, there must be something there that is extremely interesting for you to make predictions. Another criticism of deep learning concerns the lack of theory surrounding many of the methods that are being used today. Moreover, most of the learning in deep architectures is just some form of a gradient descent, and the numerous flavors of network structures that are out there have been created empirically. This is usually not accepted by old-fashioned academia, and probably this is the main reason why there is a huge amount of papers and technical reports that are not in the index of any paid journal but just freely available for everyone. You like it or not, I think this is good. Data Science at Home is the show where we tell you the skills you need and the tools you can build at home. We are supported by World of Piggy, thinking human world in mathematical terms. Visit worldofpiggy.com or Twitter at worldofpiggy. Hey, if you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes and help this podcast reach more ears. So tell your friends and colleagues that we exist. We will really appreciate it.